Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. This is Julie, and here we have episode 246 of Forgotten Classics, where we will begin The People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard. We're not going to have a podcast highlight this week because I'm going to devote that time and maybe a little extra to talking about his life and what he did, and then also getting us ready to listen to the book a bit. So, H. Ryder Haggard, Henry Ryder Haggard was his full name. And most people have heard of him, if for no other reason than two of his most famous books, King Solomon's Minds, which was also a movie. Now that movie seems like it was made a very long time ago, but it was very popular. And She, which you're going to be surprised at how many ways it has worked itself into our popular culture by the time we're done talking about this author. His stories were always set in exotic locations. They were adventures, usually in Africa, although other places. And he is the creator of the Lost World literary genre. And you can't see what I'm reading from, but Lost World has capitalized. And that's the idea that, you know, you, oh, go to an island that's surrounded by these impenetrable mountains and you find King Kong, you find dinosaurs, you find a lost world that's been cut off so long it hasn't progressed in the same way ours has, or at all. So this is one of those sorts of books, actually. It's not the first one. That was King Solomon's Minds, but that's what we're going to read. He was born in 1856 and died in 1925, so think of the changes he saw. When he was born, Queen Victoria was the reigning monarch, and I was surprised to find that she died in 1901. I didn't realize she made it into the 1900s, so he is really set at the end of Victorian literature, but with all those great authors who we know and love, and a lot of whom are on audio now because they're out of copyright. So let's talk just a bit about his life and background. H. Ryder Haggard was born in England, and his father was disappointed with his progress in school, got a tutor, all this kind of thing, and finally said, you know what, here's the best I can do for you, son. He was 19 years old, and he set him up to be a private secretary with somebody who wound up going to Africa, the Transvaal. I may be mispronouncing that. Basically, Africa. The Zulus, Boers, and Britons were all fighting it out. South Africa, actually, now that I think about it. So he was there when the British, British annexation was read of the Boer Empire. In fact, he read most of it because the governor had lost his voice then. He worked there for quite some time, got married there, had several children while he was there, so obviously we can see that the reason a lot of his adventure novels were set in Africa is that it was an exotic location he'd lived in. It was very different from anything the British people were used to, and he could really spin a good yarn about all the places they hadn't discovered yet. Eventually, in 1881, the Transvaal was given back to the Dutch and the Haggards went back to England. Once he got back, he wrote a book about the political situation in South Africa. He wrote a few unsuccessful novels. 
And then in 1885, Treasure Island came out. One of his brothers bet him that he could write something as good. And it said that Haggard wrote King Solomon's Mines in six weeks, which is crazy. But I guess if you have nothing else to do and all you're going to do is write, six weeks might be enough. At any rate, it was a huge success, made him quite wealthy because he was smart enough to ask for royalties instead of the flat 100 pounds they wanted to give him. So he was making a lot of money. He went ahead and wrote a sequel, Alan Quartermain, and then he wrote She and its sequel, Aisha She. And then he was completely set. So he spent his days as a gentleman farmer and would dictate stories to his secretary in the study. And he wrote a huge string of these kind of swashbuckling adventure stories. He also wrote a lot about agriculture and social reform, partly inspired by his experience in Africa, but also based on what he saw in England and Europe. And I would imagine the comparison between those settings would probably be helpful to him. It's kind of interesting. This doesn't have anything to do with his book, but I was interested to see that he and Rudyard Kipling agreed on certain political things. They met each other and became lifelong friends based on that, always supported each other. I love the idea, H. Ryder Haggard, Rudyard Kipling. You never know who you like who's connected to someone else. It's funny. It seems like a small world, doesn't it? At any rate, once you've read a few of H. Ryder Haggard's books, you start to see how it influenced popular culture, and you especially see it when you're reading his most popular books. The book She had as its protagonist Aisha, and it's kind of interesting to see that she was cited as a prototype by psychoanalysts as different as Sigmund Freud in The Interpretation of Dreams and Carl Jung. Her description of she who must be obeyed, which is what everybody calls her, (laughs) is familiar to anybody who knows the Rumple of the Bailey series, which I absolutely love. That's what Rumple calls his wife, Hilda, under his breath. He never says it to her. And it's funny because after we watched some of those episodes, my husband started calling me that, which didn't upset me at all. I know it would have upset Hilda, but I just found it hilariously funny. As I mentioned before, the Lost World genre was started with King Solomon's Mines, and it influenced all kinds of other writers, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Robert E. Howard, who wrote what we would think of as this kind of pulp sort of fiction, very florid and adventurous. And also people, though, like Philip Jose Farmer. The adventure hero of King Solomon's Mines, Alan Quartermain, was the inspiration for Indiana Jones and all kinds of other characters like him. I'm telling you, the guy was a trendsetter. And now we get into looking at the context in which these stories were written. And I'm not good like Heather over at Craftlit. I'm, you know, skimming the surface here. We're getting to the book pretty soon. But you can't deny the fact that his novels portray a lot of the stereotypes that you think of when you think of colonialism. There are preconceptions in there. He's been accused of anti-Semitism. But what I think is really interesting is every place I've seen that mentioned, and I'm talking just about regular references where they don't hesitate to lambast other authors, everybody points out that his books are unusual because of the degree of sympathy that he portrays a lot of Native populations with. 
Africans actually play heroic roles in his novels, especially if you've ever read King Solomon's Minds. And in the book we're going to read, there are several (laughs) African natives who are noble, upstanding, a lovable hero sidekick sort of person. And I was really pleased to see that. Protagonists usually are European. Evidently, not always, but the ones I've read, they're European. Now, in terms of context, I turned to a source that really summed it up very well, I thought, which was Otto Penzler in the Big Book of Adventure Stories, which he edited. And I've mentioned it here a couple times before. Well, all these stories, or a lot of them, are from the same time period and have the same cultural context of not worrying about what other people think of the things you might label them with, let's say. And I thought what Otto Penzler wrote in terms of an orientation to this was really good. So bear with me. I'm going to read this paragraph. It's a long paragraph, but I think it's worth getting it out there for anybody who's starting the book. Because I do have to admit, I started reading the book again. I read it once through and went, whoa, I really can't read this on Forgotten Classics. Then I went, you know what? I'm just going to explain it. It's such a good adventure story. I just have to do it. And even so, rereading it, I was stunned to see the way that the Jewish family that's featured in the first couple chapters is talked about. When you take it in context, you understand there are some people being good about it and some not, but it's still a shock. We're just not used to that. Here's what Otto Penzler tells us. It is impossible to avoid the subject of insensitivity in many of these stories in a time when arbiters of social conscience frown on or forbid even the use of such words as terrorist, blind, handicapped, American Indian, and jungle, this collection cannot help but send the extremely politically correct screaming into the street. I have read hundreds of stories written in the 19th century and 420th century pulp magazines, British as well as American, and these tales exhibit a near-universal insensitivity that one can forget existed not so long ago. Asians are almost uniformly described as yellow, and generally as evil, sneaky, and vicious. Black characters are often referred to as niggers, and casually racist remarks are unthinkingly used to describe both villains and accomplished figures who play important heroic roles. Anyone who is not white and Anglo-Saxon is liable, no, make that likely, to be referred to with an insulting epithet, even if it is not necessarily regarded as insulting by the speaker or the object of the denigrating term. While they are the most egregious examples, racial slurs are not the only examples of language unlikely to pass muster these days. A one-legged man is called a cripple, women are girls or dames, very short person is a midget, and so on. Yet to attempt to judge authors who worked in a different era by the standard usages of today is both narrow-minded and silly, just as it would be to impart sinister motives or attributes to them. It would make as much sense to bring today's sensibilities to these usages as to complain that a character is using a horse and buggy when he should be using a car, or that he uses a messenger to deliver news when he should simply use his cell phone. Words, not to mention concepts, that never arise in this fiction are diversity and multiculturalism. That was then. This is now. If the differences are too hard to understand or accept, you may need to skip a lot of these stories. And he's right. 
if this is going to be a problem for you, it's a great adventure story, but there are lots of other great adventure stories out there. I hope that like me, you can just kind of go, hmm, that was then, this is now. And maybe what we could take away from this is, aren't we glad it's now? Aren't we glad that it's not so casual and unthinking as it used to be? Let's go with that. Let's just look at it as a window into the past and a fantastic adventure story. There is an introduction from the author, and it is truly an introduction from the author, not one of those fake ones, say, as starts John Carter from Mars. That's enough blabbing. Let's get going. Let's dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. The People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard First published, 1894. Dedication. I dedicate this effort of primeval and troglodyte imagination, this record of barefaced and flagrant adventure, to my godsons, in the hope that therein they may find some store of healthy amusement. Ditchingham, 1894. Author's Note. On several previous occasions, it has happened to this writer of romance to be justified of his romances by facts of startling similarity, subsequently brought to light and to his knowledge. In this tale occurs an instance of the sort, a double-barreled instance, indeed, that to him seems sufficiently curious to be worthy of telling. The people of the mist of his adventure story worship a sacred crocodile to which they make sacrifice. But in the original draft of the book, this crocodile was a snake, monstrum horrendum, a friend of the writer, an African explorer of great experience who read that draft, suggested that the snake was altogether too unprecedented and impossible. Accordingly, also at his suggestion, a crocodile was substituted. Scarcely was this change effected, however, when Mr. R. T. Corindon, the slayer of almost the last white rhinoceros, published in the African Review of February 17, 1894, an account of a huge and terrific serpent said to exist in the Dichwe district of Mashonaland that in many particulars resembled the snake of the story, whose prototype, by the way, really lives and is adored as a divinity by certain natives in the remote province of Chiapas in Mexico. Still, the tale being in type, the alteration was suffered to stand. But now, if the Zutpensberg Review may be believed, the author can take credit for his crocodile also, since that paper states that in the course of the recent campaign against Malabok, a chief living in the north of the Transvaal, his fetish, or god, was captured, and that god, a crocodile fashioned in wood, to which offerings were made. Further, this journal says that among these people, as with the ancient Egyptians, the worship of the crocodile is a recognized cult. Also, it congratulates the present writer on his intimate acquaintance with the more secret manifestations of African folklore and beast worship. He must disclaim the compliment in this instance, as when engaged in inventing the people of the mist, he was totally ignorant that any of the Bantu tribes reverenced either snake or crocodile divinities. But the coincidence is strange, and once more shows, if further examples of the fact are needed, how impotent are the efforts of imagination to vie with hidden truths. 
even with the hidden truths of this small and trodden world. September 20th, 1894 The People of the Mist, Chapter 1 The Sins of the Father Are Visited on the Children The January afternoon was passing into night. The air was cold and still, so still that not a single twig of the naked beech trees stirred. On the grass of the meadows lay a thin white rime, half frost, half snow. The firs stood out blackly against a steel-hued sky, and over the tallest of them hung a single star. Past these bordering firs there ran a road on which, in this evening of the opening of our story, a young man stood irresolute, glancing now to the right and now to the left. To his right were two stately gates of iron fantastically wrought, supported by stone pillars on whose summits stood griffins of black marble embracing coats of arms, and banners inscribed with the device Per Adua Ad Astra. Beyond these gates ran a broad carriage drive, lined on either side by a double row of such oaks as England alone can produce under the most favorable circumstances of soil, aided by the nurturing hand of man and three or four centuries of time. At the head of this avenue, perhaps half a mile from the roadway, although it looked nearer because of the eminence upon which it was placed, stood a mansion of the class that in auctioneers' advertisements is usually described as noble. Its general appearance was Elizabethan, for in those days some forgotten Outram had practically rebuilt it. But a large part of its fabric was far more ancient than the Tudors, dating back, so said tradition, to the time of King John. As we are not auctioneers, however, it will be unnecessary to specify its many beauties. Indeed, at this date, some of the tribe had recently employed their gift of language on these attractions with copious fullness and accuracy of detail, since Outram Hall, for the first time during six centuries, was, or had been, for sale. Suffice it to say that like the oaks of its avenue, Outram was such a house as can only be found in England. No mere mass of bricks and mortar, but a thing that seemed to have acquired a life and individuality of its own. Or if this saying be too far-fetched and poetical, at the least this venerable home bore some stamp and trace of the lives and individualities of many generations of mankind— linked together in thought and feeling by the common bond of blood. The young man who stood in the roadway looked long and earnestly toward the massive buildings that frowned upon him from the crest of the hill. And as he looked, an expression came into his face which fell little, if at all, short of that agony, the agony which the young can feel at the shock of an utter and irredeemable loss. The face that wore such evidence of trouble was a handsome one enough, though just now all the charm of youth seemed to have faded from it. It was dark and strong, nor was it difficult to guess that in an afterlife it might become stern. The form was also shapely and athletic, though not very tall, giving promise of more than common strength, and the bearing that of a gentleman who had not brought himself up to the belief that ancient blood can cover modern deficiencies of mind and manner. Such, then, was the outward appearance of Leonard Outram, as he was then in his twenty-third year. 
while Leonard watched and hesitated on the roadway, unable apparently to make up his mind to pass those iron gates, and yet desirous of doing so. Carts and carriages began to appear, hurrying down the avenue toward him. I suppose that the sale is over, he muttered to himself. Well, like death, it is a good thing to have done with. Then he turned to go, but hearing the crunch of wheels close at hand, stepped back into the shadow of the gateway pillar, fearing lest he should be recognized on the open road. A carriage came up, and just as it reached the gates, something being amiss with the harness, a footman descended from the box to set it right. From where he stood, Leonard could see its occupants, the wife and daughter of a neighboring squire, and overhear their conversation. He knew them well. Indeed, the younger lady had been one of his favorite partners at the county balls. "'How cheap things went, Ida!' Fancy buying that old oak sideboard for ten pounds, and with all those outram quarterings on it, too. It is as good as an historical document, and I am sure it must be worth at least fifty. I shall sell ours and put it into the dining room. I have coveted that sideboard for years. The daughter sighed and answered with some asperity. I am so sorry for the Outrams that I should not care about the sideboard if you had got it for twopence. What an awful smash! Just think of the old place being bought by a Jew. Tom and Leonard are utterly ruined, they say. Not a sixpence left. I declare I nearly cried when I saw that man selling Leonard's guns. Very sad indeed, answered the mother absently. But if he's a Jew, what does it matter? He has a title, and they say he is enormously rich. I expect there will be plenty going on at Outram soon. By the way, my dear Ida, I do wish you could cure yourself of the habit of calling young men by their Christian names. Not that it matters about these two, for we shall never see any more of them. I am sure I hope that we shall said Ida defiantly, and when we do, I shall call them by their Christian names as much as ever. You never objected to it before the smash, and I love both of them, so there. Why did you bring me to that horrid sale? You know I did not want to go. I shall be wretched for a week. I— And the carriage swept on out of hearing. Leonard emerged from the shadow of the gateway and crossed the road swiftly. On the further side of it he paused— and looking after the retreating carriage, said aloud, God bless you for your kind heart, Ida Hatherley. Good luck go with you. And now for the other business. A hundred yards or so down the road was a second gate of much less imposing appearance than those which led to the Outram Hall. Leonard passed through it, and presently found himself at the door of a square red brick house, built with no other pretensions than to those of comfort. This was the rectory, now tenanted by the Reverend and Honorable James Beach, to whom the living had been presented many years before by Leonard's father, Mr. Beach's old college friend. Leonard rang the bell, and as its distant clamor fell upon his ears, a new fear struck him. What sort of reception would he meet with in this house, he wondered. Hitherto his welcome had always been so cordial that until this moment he had never doubted of it. But now circumstances were changed. He was no longer in the position of the second son to Sir Thomas Outram of Outram Hall. He was a beggar, 
an outcast, a wanderer, the son of a fraudulent bankrupt and suicide. The careless words of the woman in the carriage had let a flood of light into his mind, and by it he saw many things which he had never seen before. Now he remembered a little motto he had often heard, but the full force of which he did not appreciate until today. Friends follow fortune, was the wording of this motto. He remembered also another saying that had frequently been read to him in church and elsewhere, and the origin of which precluded all doubt as to its truth. Unto every one that hath shall be given, but from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. Now, as it chanced, Leonard, beggared as he was, had still something left which could be taken away from him, and that something the richest fortune which Providence can give to any man in his youth, the love of a woman whom he also loved. The Reverend and Honorable James Beach was blessed with a daughter, Jane by name, who had the reputation, not undeserved, of being the most beautiful and sweetest-natured girl that the countryside could show. Now, being dark and fair, respectively, and having lived in close association since childhood, Leonard and Jane, as might be expected from the working of the laws of natural economy, had gravitated toward each other with increasing speed ever since they had come to understand the possibilities of the institution of marriage. In the end, thus, mutual gravitation led to a shock and confusion of individualities which was not without its charm, or... To put the matter more plainly, Leonard proposed to Jane, and had been accepted with many blushes and some tears and kisses. It was a common little romance enough, but like everything else with which youth and love are concerned, it had its elements of beauty. Such affairs gain much from being the first in the series. Who is there among us that does not adore his first love and his first poem, and yet when we see them twenty years after. Presently the rectory door was opened and Leonard entered. At this moment it occurred to him that he did not quite know why he had come. To be altogether accurate, he knew why he had come well enough. It was to see Jane, and arrive at an understanding with her father. Perhaps it may be well to explain that his engagement to that young lady was of the suppressed order. Her parents had no wish to suppress it, indeed, for though Leonard was a younger son, it was well known he was destined to inherit his mother's fortune of fifty thousand pounds, more or less. Besides, Providence had decreed a delicate constitution to his elder and only brother, Thomas. But Sir Thomas Outram, their father, was reputed to be an ambitious man who looked to see his sons marry well and this marriage would scarcely have been to Leonard's advantage from the family lawyer point of view. Therefore, when the matter came to the ears of Jane's parents, they determined to forego the outward expression of their pride and delight in the captive whom they owed to the bow and spear of their daughter's loveliness at any rate for a while, say until Leonard had taken his degree. Often and often in the after years did they have occasion to bless themselves for their caution. But not the less on this account was Leonard's position as the affianced lover of their daughter recognized among them. Indeed, the matter was no secret from anybody, except perhaps from Sir Thomas himself. 
For his part, Leonard took no pains to conceal it even from him. But the father and son met rarely, and the estrangement between them was so complete that the younger man saw no advantage in speaking of a matter thus near to his heart, until there appeared to be a practical object in so doing. The Reverend James Beach was a stout person of bland and prepossessing appearance. Never had he looked stouter, more prepossessing, or blander than on this particular evening when Leonard was ushered into his presence. He was standing before the fire in his drawing-room, holding a huge and ancient silver loving-cup in both hands, and in just a position to give the observer the idea that he had just drained its entire contents. In reality, it may be explained, he was employed in searching for a hallmark on the bottom of the goblet, discoursing the while to his wife and children, for Jane had a brother, upon its value and beauty. The gleam of the silver caught Leonard's eye as he entered the room, and he recognized the cup as one of the heirlooms of his own family. Leonard's sudden and unlooked-for advent brought various emotions into active play. There were four people gathered round that comfortable fire, the rector, his wife, his son, and last, but not least, Jane herself. Mr. Beach dropped the cup sufficiently to allow himself to stare at his visitor along its length, for all the world as though he were covering him with a silver bunderbluss. His wife, an active little woman, turned round as if she moved upon wires, exclaiming, "'Good gracious! Who'd have thought it?' while the son, a robust young man of about Leonard's own age, and his college companion said, "'Hello, old fellow. Well, I never expected to see you here today.' A remark which, however natural it may have been, scarcely tended to set his friend at ease. Jane herself, a tall and beautiful girl with bright auburn hair, who was seated on a footstool nursing her knees before the fire and paying very little heed to her father's lecture upon ancient plate, did none of these things. On the contrary, she sprang up with the utmost animation, her lips apart, and her lovely face red with blushes, or the heat of the fire, and came toward him, exclaiming, "'Oh, Leonard! Dear Leonard!' Mr. Beach turned the silver blunderbuss upon his daughter and fired a single but most effective shot. "'Jane,' he said in a voice in which fatherly admonition and friendly warning were happily blended. Jane stopped in full career, as though in obedience to some lesson which momentarily she had forgotten. Then Mr. Beach, setting down the flagon, advanced upon Leonard with an ample pitying smile and outstretched hand. "'How are you, my dear boy? How are you?' he said. "'We did not expect—' "'To see me here under the circumstances,' put in Leonard bitterly. "'Nor would you have done so, but Tom and I understood it was only to be a three-day sale.' "'Quite right, Leonard. At first the sale was advertised for three days, "'but the auctioneer found he could not get through in time.' The accumulations of such an ancient house as Altrum Hall are necessarily vast. And he waved his hand with a large gesture. Yes, said Leonard. Hum, went on Mr. Beach, after a pause which was beginning to grow awkward. Doubtless you will find it a matter for congratulations that on the whole things sold well. It is not always the case, not by any means, for such collections as those of Outram, however interesting and valuable they may have been to the family itself, 
do not often fetch their worth at a country auction. Yes, they sold decidedly well, thanks chiefly to the large purchases of the new owner of the estate. This tankard, for instance, which I have bought, ahem, as a slight memento of your family, cost me ten shillings an ounce. Indeed, answered Leonard coldly. I always understood that it was worth fifty. Then came another pause, during which all who were present except Mr. Beach and himself rose one by one and quitted the room. Jane was the last to go, and Leonard noticed as she passed him that there were tears in her eyes. Jane, said her father in a meaning voice when her hand was already on the door, you will be careful to be dressed in time for dinner, will you not, love? You remember young Mr. Cohen is coming, and I should like somebody to be down to receive him. Jane's only answer to this remark was to pass through the door and slam it behind her. Clearly the prospect of the advent of this guest was not agreeable to her. Well, Leonard, went on Mr. Beach, when they were alone, in a tone that was meant to be sympathetic, but which jarred horribly on his listeners' ears. This is a sad business, very sad, but why are you not sitting down? Because no one asked me to, said Leonard, as he took a chair. Hem, continued Mr. Beach. By the way, I believe that Mr. Cohen is a friend of yours, is he not? An acquaintance, not a friend, said Leonard. Indeed, I thought that you were at the same college. Yes, but I do not like him. Prejudice, my dear boy, prejudice. A minor sin, indeed, but one against which you must struggle. But there, there, it is natural that you should not feel warmly about the man who will one day own Outram. Ah, as I said, this is all very sad. But it must be a great consolation to you to remember that when everything is settled here, there will be enough, so I am told, to pay your unhappy father's debts. And now, is there anything that I can do for you or your brother? Leonard reflected that whatever may have been his father's misdeeds, and they were many and black, it should scarcely have lain in the mouth of the Reverend James Beach, who owed nearly everything he had in the world to his kindness, to allude to them. But he could not defend his father's memory. It was beyond defense, and just now he must fight for his own hand. "'Yes, Mr. Beach,' he said earnestly. "'You can help me very much.' You know the cruel position in which my brother and I are placed through no fault of our own. Our old home is sold, our fortunes have gone utterly, and our honorable name is tarnished. At the present moment I have nothing left in the world except the sum of two hundred pounds, which I had saved for a purpose of my own out of my allowance. I have no profession, and cannot even take my degree because I am unable to afford the expense of remaining at college." "'Black, I must say, very black,' murmured Mr. Beach, rubbing his chin. "'But under these circumstances, what can I do to help you? "'You must trust in Providence, my boy. "'It never fails the deserving.' "'This,' answered Leonard nervously, "'you can show your confidence in me by allowing my engagement to Jane to be proclaimed.' Here Mr. Beach waved his hand once more as though to repel some invisible force. One moment, continued Leonard. 
I know that it seems a great deal to ask, but listen. Although everything looks so dark, I have reliance on myself. With the stimulus which my affection for your daughter will give me, and knowing that in order to win her I must first put myself in a position to support her as she should be supported, I am quite convinced that I will be able to surmount all difficulties by my own efforts. Really, I cannot listen to such nonsense any longer, broke in Mr. Beach angrily. Leonard, this is nothing less than an impertinence. Of course, any understanding that may have existed between you and Jane is quite at an end. Engagement. I heard of no engagement. I knew there was some boy and girl folly between you indeed, but for my part I never gave the matter another thought. You seem to forget, sir, said Leonard, keeping his temper with difficulty, that not six months ago... You and I had a long conversation on this very subject and decided that nothing should be said to my father of the matter until I had taken my degree. I repeat that it is an impertinence, answered Mr. Beach, but with a careful avoidance of the direct issue. What? You who have nothing in the world except a name which your father has, well, tarnished, to use your own word, you ask me for my dear daughter's hand? You are so selfish that you wish not only to ruin her chances in life, but also to drag her into the depths of your poverty. Leonard, I should never have thought it of you. Then at last Leonard spoke out. You do not speak the truth. I did not ask you for your daughter's hand. I asked you for the promise of it when I should have shown myself worthy of her. But now there is an end of that. I will go as you bid me, but before I go I will tell you the truth. You wish to use Jane's beauty to catch this Jew with. Of her happiness you think nothing, provided only you can secure his money. She is not a strong character, and it is quite possible that you will succeed in your plot, but I tell you that it will not prosper." You who owe everything to our family, now when trouble has overtaken us, turn upon me and rob me of the only good that was left to me. By putting an end to connection of which everybody knew, you stamp me still deeper into the mire. So be it. But of this I am sure. Such conduct will meet with a due reward, and that a time will come when you will bitterly regret the way in which you have dealt with your daughter and treated me in my misfortunes. Goodbye. And Leonard turned and left the room and the rectory. Chapter 2 The Swearing of the Oath Arthur Beach, Jane's brother, was standing in the hall waiting to speak to Leonard, but he passed without a word, closing the hall door behind him. Outside snow was falling, though not fast enough to obscure the light of the moon which shone through the belt of firs. Leonard walked on down the drive until he neared the gate, when suddenly he heard the muffled sound of feet pursuing him through the snow. He turned with an exclamation, believing that the footsteps were those of Arthur Beach, for at the moment he was in no mood for further conversation with any male member of that family. As it chanced, however, he found himself face to face not with Arthur, but with Jane herself, who perhaps had never looked more beautiful than she did at this moment in the snow and the moonlight. Indeed, whenever Leonard thought of her in after years, 
and that was often, there arose in his mind a vision of a tall and lovely girl, her auburn hair slightly powdered over with the falling flakes, her breast heaving with emotion, and her wide gray eyes gazing piteously upon him. "'Oh, Leonard,' she said nervously, "'why do you go without saying good-bye to me?' He looked at her a while before he answered, for something in his heart told him this was the last sight which he should win of his love for many a year, and therefore his eyes dwelt upon her as we gaze upon one whom the grave is about to hide from us for ever. At length he spoke, and his words were practical enough. You should not have come out in those thin shoes through the snow, Jane. You will catch cold. I wish I could she answered defiantly. I wish that I could catch such a cold as would kill me. Then I should be out of my troubles. Let us go into the summer house. They will never think of looking for me there. How will you get there? asked Leonard. It is a hundred yards away, and the snow always drifts in that path. Oh, never mind the snow, she said. But Leonard did mind it, and presently he hit upon a solution of the difficulty. Having first glanced up the drive to see that nobody was coming, he bent forward, and without explanation or excuse put his arms around Jane, and lifting her as though she were a child, he bore her down the path which led to the summer-house. She was heavy, but sooth to say he could have wished the journey longer. Presently they were there, and very gently he laid her upon her feet again, kissing her upon the lips as he did so. Then he took off his overcoat and wrapped it round her shoulders. All this while Jane had not spoken. Indeed, the poor girl felt so happy and so safe in her lover's arms that it seemed to her as though she never wished to speak or to do anything for herself again. It was Leonard who broke the silence. "'You ask me why I left without saying good-bye to you, Jane. It was because your father has dismissed me from the house,' and forbidden me to have any more to do with you. "'Oh, why?' asked the girl, lifting her hands despairingly. <laughs> "'Can't you guess?' he answered with a bitter laugh. "'Yes, Leonard,' she whispered, taking his hand in sympathy. "'Perhaps I had better put it plainly,' said Leonard again. "'It may prevent misunderstandings. "'Your father has dismissed me because my father embezzled all my money.' The sins of the father are visited upon the children, you see. Also, he has done this with the more than usual distinctness and alacrity, because he wishes you to marry young Mr. Cohen, the bullion broker and future owner of Outram. Jane shivered. I know, I know, she said. And, oh, Leonard, I hate him. Then perhaps it will be well not to marry him, he answered. I would rather die first, she said with conviction. Unfortunately, one can't always die when it happens to be convenient, Jane. Oh, Leonard, don't be horrid, she said, beginning to cry. Where are you going and what shall I do? To the bad, probably, he answered. At least it all depends upon you. Look here, Jane, if you will stick to me, I will stick to you. The luck is against me now, but I have it in me to see that through. I love you, and I would work myself to death for you. But at the best it must be a question of time, probably of years. Oh, 
Leonard, indeed I will if I can. I am sure that you do not love me more than I love you. But I can never make you understand how odious they all are to me about you, especially Papa. Confound him, said Leonard beneath his breath. And if Jane heard, at that moment her filial affections were not sufficiently strong to induce her to remonstrate. Well, Jane, he went on, the matter lies thus. Either you must put up with their treatment, or you must give me the go-by. Listen, in six months you will be twenty-one, and in this country all her relations put together can't force a woman to marry a man if she does not wish to, or prevent her from marrying one whom she does wish to marry. Now you know my address at my club in town. Letters sent there will always reach me, and it is scarcely possible for your father or anybody else to prevent you from writing and posting a letter. If you want my help, or to communicate in any way, I shall expect to hear from you. And, if need be, I will take you away and marry you the moment you come of age. If, on the other hand, I do not hear from you, I shall know it is because you do not choose to write, or because that which you have to write would be too painful for me to read. <sighs> do you understand, Jane? Yes, Leonard, but you put things so hardly. Things have been put hardly enough to me, love, and I must be plain. This is my last chance of speaking to you. At this moment an ominous sound echoed through the night. It was none other than the distant voice of Mr. Beach calling from his front doorstep, Jane, are you out there, Jane? Oh, heavens, she said. "'There's my father calling me. I came out by the back door, but mother must have been up to my room and found me gone. She watches me all day now. What shall I do?' "'Go back and tell them you have been saying goodbye to me. It is not a crime. They cannot kill you for it.' "'Indeed they can, or just as bad,' replied Jane. Then suddenly she threw her arms about her lover's neck, and burying her beautiful face upon his breast, she began to sob bitterly. "'murmuring, "'Oh, my darling, my darling, "'what shall I do without you?' "'Over the brief and distressing scene which followed, "'it may be well to drop a veil. "'Leonard's bitterness of mind forsook him now, "'and he kissed her and comforted her as best he might, "'even going so far as to mingle his tears with hers, "'tears of which he had no cause to be ashamed.' At length she tore herself loose, for the shouts were growing louder and more insistent. "'I forgot,' she sobbed. "'Here's a farewell present for you. Keep it in memory of me, Leonard.' And thrusting her hand into the bosom of her dress, she drew from it a little packet which she gave to him. Then once more they kissed and clung together, and in another moment she had vanished back into the snow and darkness, passing out of Leonard's sight and out of his life, though from his mind she would never pass. A farewell present, keep it in memory of me. The words yet echoed in his ears, and to Leonard they seemed fateful, a prophecy of utter loss. Sighing heavily, he opened the packet and examined its contents by the feeble moonlight. They were not large, a prayer book bound in Morocco, her own with her name on the flyleaf and a short inscription beneath and in the pocket of its cover a lock of auburn hair tied round with silk. An unlucky gift, said Leonard to himself, 
Then putting on his coat, which was yet warm from Jane's shoulders, he also turned and vanished into the snow and the night, shaping his path toward the village inn. He reached it in due course and passed into the little parlor that adjoined the bar. It was a comfortable room enough, notwithstanding its adornments of badly stuffed birds and fishes, and chiefly remarkable for its wide, old-fashioned fireplace with wrought-iron dogs. There was no lamp in the room when Leonard entered, but the light of the burning wood was bright, and by it he could see his brother seated in a high-backed chair, gazing into the fire, his hand resting on his knees. Thomas Outram was Leonard's elder by two years, and cast in a more fragile mold. His face was the face of a dreamer, the brown eyes were large and reflective, and the mouth sensitive as a child's. He was a scholar and a philosopher, a man of much desultory reading with refined tastes and a really intimate knowledge of Greek gems. "'Is that you, Leonard?' he said, looking up absently. "'Where have you been?' "'To the rectory,' answered his brother. "'What have you been doing there?' "'Do you want to know?' "'Yes, of course. Did you see Jane?' Then Leonard told him all the story. "'What do you think she'll do?' "'asked Tom, when his brother had finished. "'Given the situation and the woman, "'it is a rather curious problem.' "'It may be,' answered Leonard. "'But as I am not an equation in algebra "'yearning to be worked out, "'I don't quite see the fun of it. "'But if you ask me what I think she will do, "'I should say she will follow the example "'of everybody else and desert me.' "'You seem to have a poor idea of women, old fellow.' I know little of them myself and don't want to know more, but I have always understood that it is the peculiar glory of their sex to come out strong on these exceptional occasions. Women in our hours of ease, etc. Well, we shall see. But it is my opinion that women think a great deal more of their own hours of ease than of those of anybody else. Thank heavens here comes our dinner. Thus spoke Leonard, somewhat cynically, and perhaps not in the best of taste. But his rejoicing over its appearance notwithstanding, he could not do much justice to the dinner when it arrived. Indeed, it would be charitable to make allowances for this young man at that period of his life. He had sustained a most terrible reverse, and do what he might, he could never quite escape from the shadow of his father's disgrace— or put out of his mind the stain with which his father had dimmed the honor of his family. And now a new misfortune hung over him. He had just been driven with contumely from a house where hitherto he was the most welcome of guests. He had parted, moreover, from the woman whom he loved dearly, and under circumstances which made it doubtful if their separation would not be final. Leonard possessed the gift of insight into character and more common sense than can often be expected from a young man in love. He knew well that the chief characteristic of Jane's nature was a tendency to yield to the circumstances of the hour, and though he hoped against hope, he could find no reason to suppose she would exhibit greater determination in the matter of their engagement than her general lack of strength might lead him to anticipate. Besides, and here his common sense came in, would it be wise that she should do so? After all, what had he to offer her, and were not his dreams of future advancement nothing better than a dream? Roughly as he had put it, perhaps Mr. Beach was right when he had told him that he, Leonard, was both selfish and impertinent, 
since was it not a selfish impertinence in him to ask any woman to link her fortune with his in the present state of his affairs? Let us therefore make excuses for his words and outward behavior, for at heart Leonard had much to trouble him. When the cloth had been cleared away and they were alone again, Tom spoke to his brother, who was moodily filling his pipe. "'What shall we do tonight, Leonard?' he said. "'Go to bed, I suppose.' he answered. "'See here, Leonard,' said his brother again. "'What do you say to having a last look at the old place?' "'As you wish, Tom, but it will be painful.' "'A little pain, more or less, can scarcely hurt us, old fellow,' said Tom, laying his thin hand on his brother's shoulder. Then they started. A quarter of an hour's walking brought them to the hall.' The snow had ceased falling now, and the night was beautifully clear, but before it ceased it had done a welcome office in hiding from view all the litter and wreckage of the auction, which make the scene of a recent sale one of the most desolate sights in the world. Never had the old house looked grander or more eloquent of the past than it did on that night to the two brothers who were dispossessed of their heritage. They wandered round it in silence gazing affectionately at each well-known tree and window, till at length they came to the gun-room entrance. More from habit than for any reason, Leonard turned the handle of the door. To his surprise, it was open. After the confusion of the sale, no one had remembered to lock it. "'Let us go in,' he said. They entered and walked from room to room, till they reached the greater hall, a vast and oak-roofed chamber built after the fashion of the nave of a church, and lighted by a large window of ecclesiastical design. This window was filled with the armorial bearings of many generations of the Outram family, wrought in stained glass and placed in couples, for next to each coat of arms were the arms of its bearer's dame. It was not quite full, however, for in it remained two blank shields, which had been destined to receive the escutcheons of Thomas Outram and his wife. "'They will never be filled now, Leonard,' said Tom, pointing to these. "'Curious, isn't it? Not to say sad.' "'Oh, I don't know,' answered his brother. "'I suppose the Cohens boast some sort of arms, or if not they can buy them. "'I should think they would have the good taste to begin a new window for themselves,' said Tom. Then he was silent for a while and they watched the moonlight streaming through the painted window, the memorial of so much forgotten grandeur, and illuminating the portraits of many a dead Outram that gazed upon them from the panelled walls. Per ardua ad astra, said Tom, absently reading the family motto, which alternated pretty regularly with the second device that some members of it had adopted. For heart, home, and honour, Per adua ad astra, through struggle to the stars, and for heart, home, and honor, repeated Tom. Well, I think that our family never needed such consolations more, if indeed there are any to be found in mottoes. Our heart is broken, our hearth is desolate, and our honor is a byword. But there remained the struggle and the stars. As he spoke, his face took the fire of a new enthusiasm. Leonard, he went on, why should not we retrieve the past? Let us take that motto, the more ancient one, for an omen, and let us fulfill it. I believe it is a good omen. 
I believe that one of us will fulfill it. We can try, answered Leonard. If we fail in the struggle, at least the stars remain for us as for all humankind. Leonard, said his brother, almost in a whisper, will you swear an oath with me? It seems childish, but I think that under some circumstances there is wisdom even in childishness. What oath? asked Leonard. This, that we will leave England and seek fortune in some foreign land, sufficient fortune to enable us to repurchase our lost home, that we will never return here until we have won this fortune, and that death alone shall put a stop to our quest. Leonard hesitated a moment, then answered, If Jane fails me, I will swear it. Tom glanced round, as though in search of some familiar object and presently his eye fell upon what he sought. A great proportion of the furniture of the old house, including the family portraits, had been purchased by the incoming owner. Among the articles which remained was a very valuable and ancient Bible, one of the first ever printed, indeed, that stood upon an oaken stand in the center of the hall to which it was securely chained. Tom led the way to this Bible, followed by his brother. Then they placed their hands upon it, and standing there in the shadow, the elder of them spoke aloud in a voice that left no doubt of the earnestness of his purpose or of his belief in their mission. We swear, he said, upon this book and before the God who made us, that we will leave this home that was ours, and never look upon it again, till we can call it ours once more. We swear that we will follow this, the purpose of our lives, till death destroys us and it, and may shame and utter ruin overtake us if, while we have strength and reason, we turn our backs upon this oath. So help us, God. So help us, God, repeated Leonard. Thus, in the home of their ancestors, in the presence of their Maker and of the pictured dead who had gone before them, did Thomas and Leonard Outram devote their lives to this great purpose? Perhaps, as one of them had said, the thing was childish. But if so, at the least it was solemn and touching. Their cause seemed hopeless indeed, but if faith can move mountains, much more can honest endeavor attain its ends. In that hour they felt this. Yes, they believed that the end would be attained by one of them though they guessed little what struggles lay between them and the star they hoped to gain, or how strangely they should be borne thither. On the morrow they went to London and waited there a while, but no word came from Jane Beach, and for good or ill the chains of the oath that he had taken riveted themselves around Leonard Outram's neck. Within three months of this night, the brothers were nearing the shores of Africa, the land of the children of the mist. It seems to me that that is a splendid setup. We have the brothers with nothing left for them at home, the lost love who's always going to haunt one of them, their determination to make back what they lost. And why not do it in Africa? Everything's possible there, right? Especially in Victorian times when this was written. 
I do apologize when I was listening. I noticed that Kaylee was busy snoring away during a lot of it. Now just think of that as somebody sitting by a fire reading to you. (laughs) You have the dog at your feet happily snoring. And the other thing that I noticed, and I had noticed this before, but I finally went and looked it up, is that the brother's motto or the family, the Outram family motto is very similar to Per Aspera Ad Astra. I'm sure I mangled that. That is to the stars through difficulties. That's the Kansas state motto. I spent most of my youth in Kansas. In fact, a lot of my life in Kansas, went to college there and everything. But I heard that and I thought, oh my gosh, that's so similar. It's just kind of flipped. They're not related at all. For one thing, the Kansas State Seal, thank goodness for Wikipedia, right, was done in 1861. And this book came out in 18, well, 93 and 94. I'm just saying now it was serial published, serially published first. So by no stretch of the imagination <laughs> were they even around at the same time. However, what is interesting is the Per Ardua Ad Astra is the motto of the Royal Air Force and other Commonwealth Air Forces. It was adopted a generation after this book was published, and it has been attributed to this book. This book is more influential than we realize, I'm telling you, (laughs) for a book that no one's ever heard of. I didn't want to make this too long, but I really wanted to get us launched. Next time, we will begin in Africa, and the adventure will start. I really have no other news, except to say I'm looking out the window, and the ground is covered with snow. That's that's pretty unusual for Dallas, especially when you consider that I looked out the window this morning and said, oh my gosh, snowflakes. It was so magical feeling. And that's when I realized I really do live in the South, capital S South, because people who are listening who live further North (laughs) or like, you know, Scott from Good Story is hard to find living in Utah. They're like, and the news is what? <laughs> it's February. Of course, it's snowing. And why would you be excited? Whereas I just said, oh my gosh, it hasn't done this for a long time. And then this morning, there was just this little layer of this very dry snow. And I said, well, I'll go get a prescription on the way into work. It will just take five extra minutes. Oh, wrong. Everybody was driving well, maybe the speed limit and sometimes less. And they were slipping and they were sliding and they were freaked out. And our office is next to a long, tall hill. When you look out the window, you could see all these cars slipping and sliding and going sideways. We're just not equipped for this, people. Give us 110 degree temperatures. We know what to do. Give us 18 degrees and a little bit of snow and we fall apart. (laughs) So that was my adventure. Very far from Africa, unless you're on a mountain there, I suppose. Oh, that could happen. We don't know. We've got the whole continent to think about. I hope wherever you are, you're enjoying the weather you have, the hand you've been dealt, (laughs) because you probably can't change it anyway. And I am thankful, as always, for you coming by to listen. 
You have a lot of things you could do with your time. I appreciate you coming to share a little bit of it with me because it makes me read these books out loud and I have a great time doing it. Have a great week, everyone. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.